This is the Rise City Church Sermon Podcast. We are a church in Gresham, Oregon, on a mission to rise up and saturate our city with the gospel. We would love for you to join us on Sundays. For more information, check out our website, rise.cc. Whether you already follow Jesus or are exploring Christianity, we hope that you experience the power of God through this message. What's going on, Rise City Church? Woo woo! Okay, that extra hour of sleep did you guys good. I can feel it. I'll be honest though, I thought that we were losing, I don't know how any of that works. I thought I was losing sleep and then someone told me I was gonna gain and I was so excited right there at the final hour. I was like, yes, thank you, Lord. More sleep is better, thank you. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Zach Landis. I am a leader here at the church. I lead the Next Steps team and I'm so excited to bring the word to you today. We've been going through a series called Find Your People and and if you haven't been coming or this is your first week, to give you kind of a quick synopsis of that, we first were looking at the importance of finding your people within the church and, and growing and walking alongside them, and how do we do that, and, and going through how we do that. And then we've kind of gone along the rabbit hole into what happens when we find them, like how last week Jason had a wonderful message about vulnerabilities, encouragement, how, how we should handle those things with care, and, and it was a powerful time. So I wanted to explore that further as we go down the rabbit hole. Now I would like to see what it means once you have your people, what does it take to keep your people See, so often it's all about the, the quest, right, the journey. You're, you're like, okay, I just, things will get better if I find my people, and life's going to be all just rainbows and butterflies, and it's going to be fantastic. But then, then you actually find your people, and anybody that has a friendship group or, or is in a relationship or anything of the sort, they would tell you that finding your people is just the beginning of the journey. The hard part begins now, because there are going to be trials and tribulations. It's great when the season's great, but when the season's bad, we have to be ready to to navigate that as a people under Christ. We have to walk out the truth that we are a made people in Jesus. So I'm going to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 10. It'll be on the screen, and there's also Bibles throughout the room if you if you would want to open that if you don't have your own Bible. Um, but we're going to be spending our time. We're going to camp there. Um, we're going to read through this and, ca- and camp out on 1 Peter chapter 2. But here's the thing. I, I do feel the need um, to, it's Peter. And yes, it's that Peter. Now, if you don't know what I mean, I, uh, so often Peter gets a bad rap because, well, to be honest, he's low-hanging fruit. It's easy to joke about him. He's easy to point at as the not, don't do this, but do this instead. Like, he's kind of known as the loudmouth disciple. He's kind of the goofiest disciple. He's kind of the rash disciple. He's the first one to be like, I don't know about that, Jesus. And everyone's like, wait, the disciples are like, what did Jesus say? What are you talking about? He's like, I don't know about that, Jesus. And then he'll get like called out on it. And then he'll be like, actually, I'm all for it. I'm more for it than the rest of these disciples. And like the disciples, you could feel the eye roll that these disciples must do on a regular basis. I mean, this is the guy that, that said, no, I'll never deny you, Jesus. Denies him three times. This is the guy that when, when the Roman guards come, he cuts a guy's ear off. I mean, he's an ear cutter. Come on now. Don't worry. Jesus put it back. Um, but this is a guy that we like to, to kind of poke fun at and, and make fun of. And, but the fact of the matter is, Peter is an incredible, remarkable apostle and a part of this, this, this Bible. And so I feel almost compelled to make a case for him. Um, so we're going to do some Peter fun facts. Is that okay? 
Peter, fun facts. I like that. So here's some fun facts about Peter, if you will. The case for Peter. Peter is the second most mentioned person by name after Jesus in the Gospels. Like, I, that caught me off guard. I was like, really? That can't be... I obviously checked every single one, right? But Peter is the second most mentioned person by name after Jesus in the Gospels. And not only that, there is no one quoted other than Christ more in the Gospels than Peter. Peter is the most rebuked, for sure. That's on record. But interestingly enough, Peter is also the most praised by Jesus, Peter confesses Jesus more boldly and accurately than any other disciple. He's the one that proclaims him the son of God through the Holy Spirit acting through him. And it's evident from the authority of his letters and from the events of Acts that he was a leader among the apostles. Not just an apostle, but a leader among the apostles and influential in the early church. See, Peter is rough around the edges, but he is a perfect example of someone that was built up and made through Jesus. And the intended destination of this letter, before we read it, I think is also incredibly important. He's, so often these letters, we look at them, and they are usually addressed to a specific uh, church, and, and it's addressing a specific church or a specific person, but this is addressed to all of the church, because Peter here is going to speak something that he knows is needed for the entire church, because the church at this time, they're being persecuted, they're being pushed, they're discouraged, and, and unity is the most important thing they need right now in this time, and Peter takes the time to address this. So we're opened up, First Peter, we're in chapter 2, and let's read it, and it's entirety. And we're going to camp here. So let's start in verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's good, amen. Peter lays out these amazing truths of what it means to be a people in Christ. But before he does that, did you catch it? He makes it very clear what we're not to be. He starts very clear and says, listen, these things need to go away. And I don't want to just gloss over them, right? One line, and then we have all the other lines. And it's like, oh, let's focus. On no, no, no. This line is key because he's saying, listen here. These things got to go. They have no place in our church. They have no place in our tables, in our dinner tables, in our communities. They need to go. Because these things, when you look at them, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. When I look at these, the first thing that jumps out is these 
these are community killers. And Peter knows it. And so I think it's time for us to go through these. It makes sense for us to go through these and truly understand what we're looking at here. To take the time to understand what each one of these and how they might impact us. The first of which is malice. What's the definition of malice? Malice is the intention or desire to do evil, ill will. Now, I, I imagine most of you in this room are not contending with malice on a, on a daily basis, or at least I hope so. Um, I hope this is not a malicious room that I am in front of right now. But, you know, malice it can seem like the one we skip over. We're like, I'm not a malicious person. I'm not, that's not me. Let's move on. What are these other ones? Maybe I could see in this. But the funny thing about malice, you might not, and if you are struggling through that, please walk through it. But if, if you're like, I'm not a malicious person by nature, well, here's the thing. Malice can sneak up pretty quick. Malice can be the thing when all of a sudden you didn't get that invite you thought you were going to get or, or that text message you thought you should have received from that person or that phone call to see how you were doing. All of a sudden, there's a little bit of resentment in you. And in a moment of conversation with someone, a malicious thing comes out. You say something that will cut them to their core and you know it will. You know it will and you, and you maybe even go, oh no, I can't get, nope, can't get it back. Shot out your mouth because you let that resentment build and a malicious word came out. Because the thing about malice is a moment, in a moment of weakness, it can cause lasting, long-lasting damage. So Peter says, we got to be ahead of this. We need to be aware of this. We need to cover this. And we need to move on from this. The next is this, deceit. Deceit, the action or practice of deceiving someone by concealing or misrepresenting the truth. This one's interesting because when I looked at it, I, I assumed lying would be on the board, right? Like straight up lying should be a part of it. But no, deceit is something else. Deceit is a twisting of truths and lying by omission. It's leaving stuff off of the table. And now why is this dangerous for a group? Well, I'll tell you, if you live a deceitful life, you are limiting your ability to be vulnerable with the group because deceit kills vulnerability. Now, this one's tough because a lot of people do it and a lot of people say they're doing a good thing. It's easy to say, I don't want to be a burden for others. I don't want to let them in. I don't want to tell them these things about my week, about how hard work's been or how hard my relationship's been, my marriage's been, how I feel lonely, how I feel. I, I don't want to talk about that because, you know, I don't want to burden them with my problems. So really, I'm selfless, Right? I'm taking care of them, right? It's okay to be deceitful and when they ask, how was my week, to say it was fine, it was good. Don't worry about it. No, deceitfulness kills vulnerability in, in yourself and in a group because that's where the real fruit is. The ability to be vulnerable with one, with one another is a precious thing, but when we decide to close off, we are not doing anyone a favor. You are not letting that person experience the gift of investing in you. And furthermore, you're cutting off the gift of being invested in. So Peter says, we can't have that here. Put that away. The next is hypocrisy. The practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Everyone loves a hypocrite. No? Weird. I thought everyone was like, yeah, hypocrites are so good. No, we all, we don't like a hypocrite. Hypocrites are, are, are not good. Hypocrites are the people that you go, really, bro? Don't tell me one more time because your life is not living that and I don't want to hear it. You know, it, 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 
it's hard to receive something from somebody when they are not living the thing they're saying. And it could be good stuff. It could be good fruit. It could be biblical knowledge that they're sharing with you. But if their life does not match up with it, it starts to slowly fall on deaf ears because hypocrisy is the slow death of encouragement. Hypocrisy is a slow death of encouragement. What I mean by that is this. You just cannot receive encouragement after some time. It might start slow. You might first hear it, and they're like, hey, this is how you should live. Honestly, the word says this, and I I want this for you. And you're like, you realize this person's certainly not living that? But you're like, that's good, though. I can take that. I'm going to walk through that. I'm going to walk through that. But it happens the third time, and the fourth time, and the fifth time. And all of a sudden, their wisdom is making you roll your eyes in your head, and it's falling on deaf ears, and you're rejecting even good fruit, good truth from them, because their lives do not live it. And honestly, it goes both ways. If that's you, you're doing that to people right now, and it has no place in your groups and in your friendships. You need to practice what you preach. And so Peter says, let's get rid of it has no place here. The next one is envy. Oh boy, let's talk about envy. A feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. Guys, we have a problem right now. We're in a social media era, and whether it's in the church or outside of the church, envy is one of the biggest problems we are facing right now. Because here's the thing, we can't help but compare ourselves to other people. And here's the other thing. We've gotten really, really good at presenting a curated version of our lives. Here, let me present the best part of my life only, deceit. Let me present the best part of my life only so when others look at me, they can only be envious of all the great things happening. Listen, we're we're taking pictures of those smiling children, not the crying pictures, you know. We're getting those out. Let's throw those away. And and what happens is you have, uh, you know, you do. You have a a guy who maybe is is single and he has a great life and he, he, you know, he's able to do what he wants and he goes to events and concerts. He flies around. He enjoys, he goes to different places. He enjoys his life, but then he sees the family with the perfect picture of kids, the perfect wife, the the perfect family, smiling. They never cry, and it's always good, and the stories are always good on Instagram, and, and they become a little envious because they're, they don't have that. They're like, well, this is great, but it feels a little empty when I look at a complete family. But here's the really twisted thing. On the flip end, you have that family. You have that husband or that wife, and they could see that same person's Instagram account or whatever social media account, and they look at them and go, wow, look at the freedom they have. Look at them jet-setting. Look at them going to all these events that I wish I could go to that I just don't have the time for. If only I could have that. I kind of want that. I envy that. I wish I had that. Do you see the sickness here? Two people have two very different lives, and both are looking across the fence, and both think the grass is greener on the other side. And here's why. Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. It takes away your natural ability to look into yourself and be joyful about the things around you. It takes away the ability to to appreciate even the smallest things in your life because you're too busy looking the other way. And it's a thief on both sides because not only that, you find that you can't be joyful for those around you. It leaks into your communities. It leaks into your groups because all of a sudden you're looking at them and their lives and wishing you had what they had. And all of a sudden you're wishing, I wish something would knock them down a peg. I really, you know, it's great for them and all, but wouldn't it be great if they just had some troubles like I have? It takes away the joy. We're supposed to celebrate with our fellow believers, but it robs it of that because you are so envious 
of what they have that you can't be joyful for what God's doing in their life and also in yours. So Peter says, put that away. Last is slander, and I think he does it on purpose. I think he puts it at the end here because slander, though straightforward, is deadly. It says this, for definition, the action or crime of making a false spoken statement damaging to a person's reputation. See, the thing about it, if you've ever been hurt directly by slander, you know its weight. It's, it's, it's worse than gossip because it's a lie. It's a direct lie that's meant only in a malicious intent, and it, and it hurts, and it spreads, and it kills. Slander is a lit match purposely thrown into a dry field, and it spreads, and it leaves only destruction in its path, and only a community under Jesus can stomp it out before it really ever gets started. So Peter says, put it away. Put it away. Put these things behind you. He doesn't say do less with it. Try not to do it. He says, put these things away. Not ambiguous, not coy. He says it has no place in a Christ-centered community that we are to protect unity at every level in the church. I love Charles Spurgeon, his take on this. He says, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. The enemy would love nothing more to see us isolated, separated, weak, and dead. And for those reasons, we must stay together as a community, and we must combat these community killers. So how do we do that? Let's read in verse 2 and 3 together says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love that illustration of a newborn infant craving its mother's milk. And, and it reminds me of something because I'm part of a group myself. Um, I'm part of a group that meets Every, every week, um, sometimes twice a week, and, and we get together, and um, it's, it's mostly people from Rise, and, and they're all followers of Jesus, and we all get together, and we eat some food, and we talk about our weeks, and, and we encourage each other, uplift each other, and then you're probably thinking next, well, what, what is it? Is it a Bible study? Maybe we go do a Bible study together? Uh, or maybe it's, maybe it's like an official, maybe it's official Rise group, and maybe we're talking about the sermon from the last week, some questions. No, we're not doing any of that. We mosey over to the living room, turn down the lights, get our snacks ready, turn on the TV. And what's before us? A little show called The Bachelor. Oh, yes. well, mixed reactions, right? And whoever's like, yeah, I mean, like, we need to check that hard because it is the trashiest. It's, it is a garbage shell. It is a, it's a television version of a dumpster fire. It is so bad. It is so trashy. But we love it. We love it. We can't help ourselves. And we, and like, we do everything. Like, just love the interaction. Like, I would never watch this show on my own. But with people in a room with snacks, we're doing everything but throwing popcorn at the screen going, boo, boo, hiss. And if you don't know what this show is, listen, here is, I'm not going to spend much time. It does not deserve much time. But The Bachelor is this. Here's the, here's the, the plea. Here's the, the ploy. Uh, hey, wouldn't you love to find love? 
awesome. Well, the best way to find love is to be one dude dating 26 women all at once, right? That makes sense. That, that's tracks. That's biblical, certainly. No, no, this is bad. It's bad news bears. And so we watch this show and we get really into it. I mean, like we're talking brackets into it. We're like making brackets. Like, I don't know. I think she's going to win his heart. So I'll put her in my top five and top three. And we're just having a good time. And, and this group of people is in a unique season, a really wonderful season where, where everyone keeps getting pregnant every six months to a year, and then every six months to a year, we're having babies. There's babies. There's babies popping out left and right. And so our group is full of, of newborns and six-month-year-olds and, and, and one-year-olds, and they're there. They're ready, right? Start them young on The Bachelor. They're there. They're ready to go. And so we get together, and we start. We turn the lights down. We get ready. We've got the snacks. The show's on. We press play. And no matter what, every week, there will be a point where you hear one of these. And you're like, oh, jeepers, creepers. And that was a baby, by the way. I thought it was a good impression, but whatever. That was a baby. Um, And and the baby is crying. And and the baby might be, you know, need a change. Or the the baby might, uh, you know, might just be fussy. But more often than not, way more often than not, that baby is is hungry. That baby wants either milk or formula and needs to be fed. And guess what? That baby does not care that The Bachelor is on. That baby does not care that we've got the lights low and we've got our snacks ready and we're settled in. That baby does not care about that. And you know what else the baby doesn't care about? That those parents probably, that's the first time they sat down all day long and that baby's like, nope, get up and get me my milk. Because you know what? They're babies, right? Everyone gets it. They're babies. They have to be fed. They know they need to be fed. They're hungry and they need to grow and they need it to survive. So there will be nothing that stops them from getting their milk. And see, guys, that's why this illustration is so powerful that Peter gives us, because that's how we're supposed to crave spiritual milk. That's how we're supposed to, the word of God, we're supposed to crave in a way that not like, oh, I need to check it off and say I read my Bible today and that I prayed with God today. No, that nothing will ever get between us. That we are so hungry, so desperate for it, because we know if we do not get it, we will surely die. That is the picture Peter's presenting here, that we need to be about the spiritual milk of being in our word and being in prayer. And I know some of you are probably saying like, okay, but what about the meat, right? Paul said that we should not sustain on milk alone. Like we need some meat. What about that real stuff? You know, like it's probably a dude saying that in his head right now. Give me that real meat stuff. I don't have time for this wuss milk. Like, no, like we, I get it. And it's right, Paul, Paul does mention the meat, and the meat is good, deeper theology and, and really broadening your, your horizons and, and wanting to go deeper and deeper in your relationship with God past just the, the reading of the word and in prayer. But, but here's the thing that I have to bring out, is so often we're always talking about the meat, like we want the meat, but we're still living as community killers, See, the thing of it is we need to walk a life nourished by pure milk of the word without malice, without deceit, without envy or hypocrisy or slander. We need to master that as well. You can have some meat on the side, but if you're not getting your daily milk, we have a problem. I love how Wayne Grudem puts it. He says to drink the milk of the word is to taste again and again what he is like. For in the hearing of the Lord's words, believers experience the joy of personal fellowship with the Lord himself. You see why this is the answer, one of the answers here to to community killers is because the more we drink 
And the more we become dependent on his presence, the easier it becomes to stop in our tracks, assess, and avoid the trappings of the enemy. It's easier to stop in our tracks and assess and see community killers for what they are because the characteristics of a fallen world become shown for what they are when we get so comfortable and used to fellowshipping with our God, to be firmly rooted in who he is. And as his light invades our life, the world gets exposed all the more. And so in knowing that it's apparent that a huge part of us being a people of God is making us into that, it's that we must build ourselves on Jesus, that we are a people built on Jesus, that the spiritual milk is there to make us a people completely dependent on Jesus. Let's read verse four and five together. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I love these pictures. Love, love these pictures that Peter puts forth. Spiritual stones being built into a spiritual house. And that spiritual house is significant. At the time, you know, Israel had a temple, and us Christians now, part of, you know, are part of that promise, and, and, and we, we're, we don't have a temple. They're thinking, like, we don't have a temple. But Peter reassures them, no, no, we do have a temple. We have a spiritual house. We have a spiritual temple in which God resides. And how much better is it than a physical location? He goes on to say that that house is built on the spiritual stone, that us spiritual stones are built on the spiritual stone, which is Jesus, the absolute foundation for our lives. He says we're a holy priesthood, and let's not lose track of that. Previously, you would only be able to have access to God. Only certain people would have access to God, and and, and everyone else would kind of have to go through them. But now all of a sudden, we're the holy priesthood, and we have direct access to God through the high priest, that is Jesus. And then we have spiritual sacrifices, presenting ourselves as spiritual sacrifices, us presenting ourselves as we are, as we continue to grow and push to be a people worthy of the calling we have received. But notice something in this, in this ordering. All those great things and those beautiful illustrations, they all are, they come after the foundation is set, not before. They're built on the foundation, not before. They're not set up and then carried over. No, every single part of it is built on Jesus. Let's read verse six. Verse six says this. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Everything comes down to the foundation of Jesus because there's a protection there. Did you catch it? And whoever believes in him will not be what? Put to shame. There's a protection in following after Jesus. There's a grace in following after Jesus and making him your foundation because of what he did on that cross. It is the ultimate covering for God's people and it lets us go full speed and chase after Jesus with the grace of him underneath us so we are protected in all that we do. Um, not a lot of you know this about me. I, I realized this. I was very shocked by the people were like, I didn't know that about you. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, I was in my early 20s, and I mean early 20s, I was a church planner. 
I planted a church here in Portland. I was in a ministry school in Olympia, Washington for three years. And in that time, uh, God had reveal, like, revealed a stirring in me to go into ministry. And that stirring evolved into uh, a desire to plant a church. And I was bugging out because the idea of being at the time 20 years old and being a senior pastor of a church, I went, uh, no way, impossible. But the Lord coaxed me, wrestled me, got me there. And I said, okay, I'm game. And I, at the ripe old age of 21, I moved to Portland, uh, ready to plant a church. Uh, God provided a team that, in a, another story for another time, just a miraculous way. Um, and that team was also between the ages of 18 and 21. Okay, still, all right, good. I'm still the, the patriarch, I guess, of the group. Uh, and, and we gathered together, and when we called ourselves the Lazarus Machine. Actually, we have a picture of the team, the old, the old team here. The Lazarus Machine. And look, look at these babies. Look at these absolute babies. You can tell it's old, too, because that's the old Instagram. That's old. That's good Instagram right there, that old square photo. Um, but, but there we are, these, these 18 to 21-year-olds. And, and guys, can I tell you, I'd love to say like when we were just executed so greatly in our church and it was so perfect and we did it so well right from the get-go. No, guys, it went about exactly as good as you think it went. It was, you know, it's 18 to 21-year-olds. The, the launch of our church was messy because we were messy. We're living with mom and dad. You know, we're all working part-time jobs. Like we're trying to make this work. And, and to be fair, I'll tell you straight up. We didn't even plant when we thought we were going to plant. We accidentally planted. We accidentally planted. We thought we were going to plant a few months out. And so we started getting together and, and, and planning and, and going over scripture and, and, and doing, doing worship together. And word got out. And amen, that's a great thing. Word got out and people wanted to come. And I went, well, I mean, sure. Show up. Come on out. Come on out. And after a couple weeks, two, three weeks, we were like, oh, no. Like, we have a church. We did it. We, we planned it, I guess. And so, so we, we had a role with it. And guys, can I tell you a great strategy for growing your church? Making sure that you have no idea where it's going to be every single week. Great strategy. Even better, when somebody's walking out, they go, is it here next week? You just go, hey, just give me your phone number. I'll text you the morning of. Like, that's not even, that's not even an exaggeration. We'd meet on Saturday nights, and Saturday morning, I'd be texting a list of people going, we're at the park. We're going to be at the park. We're going to be at the park. We're going to be at so-and-so's parents' house. Like, that was what we did. Like, we would send it, but by the grace of God, you know, we saw this thing, and, and it was growing. And guys, we also, we would share a meal, if you could call it that. Uh, guys, it was a potluck. And I don't know if you can imagine what a potluck put on by a bunch of 18 to 22, 23 year olds. I think we had some older people. If you can imagine a bunch of poor young kids putting on a potluck, let me, let me paint a picture. Let me paint a vivid picture. You go to the table, you're like, I can't wait to eat this delicious food. And you walk up and you see some donuts from Safeway just chilling there. Right next to that, you see some JoJo's also from Safeway just chilling there. And then you see like, a case of Capri Sun that was probably stolen from somebody's mom. And that's it. And that's the bounty. And we are so grateful for it. Lord, bless this food and nourish it to our body. And we'd eat it and we'd have a good time. But, but guys, I say all this, like, I'm just giving you a small picture. I, I could go on for days of these kind of early day stories. But here's the cool thing. That church, like, went on for, I mean, that picture I told you that was up there was three years deep. Like, we went on for five years. And then we actually, we merged with another ministry. And that continued on. And it's still on today. There are people from that church that I still look at in that ministry today thriving with family and, 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 and just with a group of their own, and it warms my heart. But for all intents and purposes, 
that should have been a failure in two weeks. Like, that should have not have made it. That should have been dead on arrival. That should have been done in two months, tops. But the reason it didn't isn't because of me, certainly not. And it wasn't because my team, even though they were remarkable, but it was because the Lazarus machine was built on the same foundation that's existed for 2,000 years. And that foundation is Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. That foundation resists community killers by nature. If you invest in that, you follow after the scriptures, you follow after Jesus, you long for that spiritual milk, you will resist the community killers that would try to snatch that up in two months' time. This is the same foundation that right now is helping to lead revivals in China under heavy persecution. Bangladesh, West Africa, same stories. There are revivals happening that are built on this 2,000-year-old foundation of Jesus Christ. Because the facts are that anything less will fail you. Anything less will fail you. Imperfect people will especially fail you. Leaders, leaders of the church, like Pastor Jason is an amazing man. I get to call a friend, and he, he's an amazing husband. He's an amazing father. He is an amazing friend, and I get to see him behind the scenes. And guys, he's the real deal. He lives up to it. But if you build your faith on him alone, it will fail. And he would tell you that himself. Because everything needs to be built on the foundation of Jesus first, everything else second. Russ, who's been here uh, for a, a little while now, and he came two weeks ago, gave an amazing message. And guys, behind the scenes, his heart for you people, holy smokes, we are blessed beyond measure to have Russ. But if you build your foundation on him and not Jesus, it's doomed to fail. Your group, do not build the foundation on me, skipping, next on. Uh, but your groups, your friends, no matter how righteous they may be and no matter how encouraging they may be, if they do not meet that standard of Jesus, they cannot be what you build your foundation on. And guess what? There is only one standard, and it is Jesus. Nobody matches Jesus. He died on our cross. He rose from the dead. He is the ultimate and only foundation in which we will thrive as his people. You see, that grace, it really is. It's the ultimate safety net. We want to be a holy priesthood? Awesome. Direct connection to God. We want to have spiritual sacrifices and grow? Excellent. That's good. We want to build a spiritual house? Of course we do. But all of it has to be established on the cross because we are now his people. We are now his people. And this was a scandalous thing. This was a scandalous thing at the time because the Jews, they were God's people alone and solely. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus saying, everyone can have a seat at the table. Everyone can be grafted into the family tree and we are blessed for it. And they were having a hard time accepting it. In verse seven and eight, we won't read it, but he talks about that stumbling block. That's why they were stumbling because they were like, no, this is just for us. What are you talking about? It was a hard thing for them to grasp. And it was a hard thing even in the Christian communities for, for the Christians to hear from fellow brothers, fellow Jews. And that's part of what Peter is addressing here. He's addressing it here with the truth that we are now his people. Let's read verse 9 and 10 together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Peter's addressing this very, very important topic, and he's, and he's hitting it hard. He comes in like a wrecking ball in a description of who they are and, and basically saying, no, we are the chosen people. We all have a claim here at the table, and he does so, so beautifully. Actually, George Campbell Morgan does a really good breakdown of this verse, and so I, I, I want to just use his words here. He says this, the description of the church, meaning Peter's description that we just talked about, the description of the church is systematic and exhaustive. It is a race, and this suggests its life principle. It is a priesthood, and so has a right of access to God. It is a nation, and so is under his government. It is a possession, and so is actually indwelt by him. It's his completeness. It's, it's every aspect of it that we truly are his people built on his foundation. And, and you might not realize the significance of this marvelous relieving news, but the Gentiles of the time sure did because it basically was like, hey, you didn't used to belong, but now you do belong and you are among God's people. And that was a refreshing news because they were nervous that they were still not the chosen people, that they were still outside. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're a part. Peter affirms, no, no, you're a part of God's chosen people. I want to talk to the older Christians in the room, and I don't mean gray hair. Um, I think so often we can kind of miss it a little bit, because if you've been a Christian for, for you know, three, five, 10, 15, 30 years, God bless you for, for your diligence in pursuing Jesus, but we can get really dull to the spiritual milk kind of stuff. We can take a lot of stuff for granted, and we can even take for granted the fact that we are his chosen people, that we have access to him, that we have seats at the table, that we are grafted into the family tree. Actually, this is where new Christians have us beat. New Christians have us beat because they remember. It's fresh. They were outside of God, and now they're with God. They were outside of his community and his people, and now they're there, and the gratefulness, and it overwhelms, and they're so excited, and that passion you see in their eyes, like, this is for everybody, and this is for me, and it's so good. And here we are, older Christians, forgetting, because we're not drinking our spiritual milk. We're forgetting, because we're not letting that sink in, that we are his people, and this is very, very good news. Because... To be on the outside of that, we can forget what that's like. It's hard to be alone. Now listen here, I am lucky um, that I grew up in the church and I had parents that loved Jesus so much. And uh, I got to know Jesus at a very young age and he ne I've never really remember a moment without Jesus. And so I'm thankful for that. And even, and even with that and being a part of the church and following Jesus and then even planting a church, all of that, I still found myself in a series of events that led to me in the most isolated time in my entire life. I put myself into a self-imposed isolation because I, the, the things I were going through, right, I, I wasn't willing to share. I wasn't willing to be vulnerable. So I put myself in the isolation and with that, took myself outside of the church. Still love the Lord. And I'll tell you good news. He's still going to be there for you, even if you're out. But that's no way to live because he immediately told me where I needed to go. But I would put it off and I'd put it off. And I would live. I was living alone. And I remember I would just come home and cry. Text not coming in, but text also not going out because I had pushed everyone away. To feel that loneliness, to even know Jesus, but to be outside of his people is, is really something else. 
And if anything, if it's just a taste of what it means to be truly on the outside and not know what it is to have Jesus' love, like to sit there and be alone. And, and there's, a, there's a good part of the story because eventually I did go. I came to rise. And, and I came to rise and I, it was nice singing the songs with everybody and worshiping again corporately. It was nice sitting under the word and just receiving. But I'll tell you honestly, like two, three months went by and I still didn't feel back and a part of God's community. I, there was still something missing. And, and, and hear me, this isn't a pitch. This is just the truth. It wasn't until I plugged into a group. It wasn't until I committed to putting in the time to the people here on a Sunday. It wasn't until I went all in and said, I will be a part of God's people, even if it's inconvenient, even if it might be scary, even if I have to be vulnerable, I'll be a part of God's people. And I tell you, I have some of the best friends that I have ever had. I have people I consider family and that push me to be a better man in Jesus, that encourage me and, and, and walk alongside me shoulder to shoulder. They give me a picture every day of what it means to be a part of God's people. So if that's the truth we live in, if that's what we know about his mercy, his grace, his goodness, that it's all-encompassing, how do we not lean into that with one another? How do we not do everything we can to crush these community killers? How do we snuff out even a whiff of slander or put away malice or, or refuse to be envious? How do we not just pour into one another in love and, and rise above the things that we can't have in our community? Like imagine with me for a second. Imagine with me for a second what a community would be like if we never had to worry about gossip. If we never had to worry if somebody had our, 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 the right intent for us. If we never had to worry about what people are saying about us. We, never, we knew that we were safe here because everyone here was of the same accord. And everyone here understood the importance of what it means to be God's people. The worth of what it means to be God's people. And that we would express that grace to one another every single day. Could you imagine what a church like that could do? Do you imagine what that would do to somebody coming in from the outside and seeing that living out on a Sunday morning, seeing that living out throughout the weeks as we go into our homes and break bread and say, sing the songs and read the scriptures and grow in the community that we're a part of? So here's my challenge, because I don't want this to be a thing where we receive we check our box, we saw the sermon, we sang the songs, and now I'm going to forget about it once I leave this door. No, I really want you all to take something out of here. So I want to challenge you. Some of you, when we went through community killers, that rang a bell. Something irked you. Something hit you. And I don't want you to go through the work right now of feeling that sediment going up and then just going out the doors and letting it settle back down. Sift through. Do the work. Clean your river. Get it clean. Get rid of these community killers. And some of you here, maybe you didn't feel like conviction. Maybe you really are living it and, and you really do push these away and you, you're drinking your spiritual milk daily. But maybe you're in a group or a community where you've seen that maybe some of these things exist in there. And instead of challenging it 
or pushing it. You sat quietly and let it go on. When I know it's awkward and I know it's hard, but we are called to iron sharpens iron and push each other even when it's uncomfortable, when we see something that just isn't right in our groups, our friend circles, or even our church, that we would just push each other, push each other to have a community worthy of the calling we have received. Let's put away what needs to be put away. Let's address what needs to be addressed. And let's be a made people in Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for every person in this room. God, thank you so much for what you're doing in our church as we put an emphasis on finding our people, that, that what it truly means to community, to be in community, that community matters, that you value that because we are your people and we gather under your banner. Lord, I pray for the hearts out here that this, this unsettled some things. They got some stuff brought down from the riverbed, Lord God. And I just pray right now that it would be rooted out, Lord, that they would take the time to address it that this coming days and weeks, Lord God, that it would be fresh on their hearts and in their minds and that they would go and be the kind of people that will come to you daily, Lord, that we'd be in our word, that we would pray with you, that we'd drink that spiritual milk, understanding that it is so key to who we are in you. Lord, I pray against every one of those community killers. They have no place in our church. And so we pray against the enemy who roars like a lion looking to devour us. And we say we are unified and these things have no place here. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that build our foundation on you through and through. That we would not be tricked as the world is tricked and build our foundation on something else. But no, we would rest wholly on you because your way is good. And what you did on that cross, phenomenal. And so we will build our house upon your good foundation. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.